Hello everybody, welcome to Rebel High Command Cast, a subsidiary of the IA Command YouTube channel and an Imperial Assault podcast that dares to ask the question, is a game truly dead if we choose not to let it die? I am your host TV Boy, aka Noah, and I'm joined today by the second flock, aka Wesley. Wesley, how you doing? Hey, doing great everyone. Uh, last week I said it was a great weather for Saturday, uh, this week not so much as we just had a hurricane come by. Oh, are you affected by that? Very slightly, but uh, yeah, we were in Florida, so we were in the area. Oof. Okay, I hope you guys are okay. Yeah, yeah, we are. Our neighbors, who are our good friends, lost power for about a day and a half, and we let them stay with us. But luckily, we just had a few two-second flickers. Nothing terrible. Oh, that's so nice of you. Okay, well, yeah. I hope I hope everything uh, goes okay for you guys, and it sounds like you're mostly uh, mostly unaffected in the long term, at least. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, um, very good. So I'm going to start mixing things up here. Um, uh, we're going to do the community updates here first, so that we can kind of get that out of the way and make sure everybody uh, who's listening gets the updates they need to hear. So here are your weekly community updates. All right, so we have our next free ISCP tournament coming up October 22nd. That's going to be a Saturday starting at 8 a.m. Pacific time. And it's going to be three rounds of Swiss. And again, the winner will win a printed set of Season 7 ISCP deployment cards shipped straight from the printer to your address. These are professionally printed cards on linen cardstock. Really nice. And that is absolutely free to the winner. You don't have to pay shipping or anything. There's no entry fee. Uh, you just play through the rounds, and if you come out in first place, you are going to get the prize shipped to you. Uh, and again, that is October 22nd. Uh, I'm going to put a link in the description for how to sign up. You just sign up using Tabletop TO, and it's three rounds, and you play on Vassal and Discord. The other thing is we are looking for volunteers for upcoming events. We are trying to sponsor more in-person events, but we need your help. So we have some events coming up that uh, ICP would be able to sponsor tournaments for, but we need TOs that are on the ground that can actually run the event uh, there. So upcoming is the Cherokee Open from February 25th to the 27th in North Carolina. We've got the Atlantic City Open June 10th to the 12th. We've got Adepticon in March, uh, March 24th to the 26th. And then the Lone Star Opening in August 7th to the 14th. Uh, so again, we would love to sponsor events or sponsor tournaments at these events, uh, ICP tournaments specifically, but we need people who are actually there and we need to know that there's actually interest in having an event, um, but we'd love to send out prize support and uh, re get registered for the event on behalf of the communities there or anybody who's interested in going. Uh, if you're interested in going to any of the events, let us know in the comments. And if you're interested in volunteering to be a TO, which we really need, uh, let us know in the comments or send me an email to iacommand01 at gmail.com and we can uh, hopefully get some in-person tournaments set up uh, at these big events. All right, back to the podcast. Okay, and we are back. So now I want to uh, jump into our comms chatter section. So this is where we take a listener email or comment from a previous episode video to talk about on the podcast. And this week we actually don't have anything. Um, we uh, didn't really, we got one comment on the last video asking for a link to the three player skirmish map, which I have provided. 
So if you want to have your question answered or comment read on the air, leave a comment on the YouTube videos or send an email to iacommand01 at gmail.com. All right, let's jump into some games we've played this week since the last recording. So, um, Wesley, what games have you played recently? So, my uh, only real opportunity in the past week to play Skirmish was late last night, and I did not get any responses to take me up on that. Uh, So instead, I took the time to play some of a solo campaign I started inspired by our last discussion. Uh, So I've been playing through the Edge of Oblivion campaign. That's actually something you had put together. But it's a combination of several side missions that are in the base game without any real changes, uh, except some narrative flow and a mini-campaign structure, right? Which I'm sure you're you're very familiar with, but for the viewers. Um, But after we had our discussion last week, I decided, eh, maybe once in a while I'll just pop on Tabletop uh, Simulator do the Imperial Assault 3D mod, and run through something solo. And for the AI, I decided to go with the Imperial Commander 2. Uh, The first mission went pretty smooth, but last night I went into the second mission, which was the Into the Wastes from the Bantha Rider pack. Um, I'm actually not quite done with it. I was uh, working on that this morning again, while uh, I told you I was on standby waiting for us to start here. But... Uh, what's interesting is when I loaded into the mission, um, because of how the campaign was structured, I had Obi-Wan Kenobi as an ally. And I started the mission, had the app choose all the custom deployments, and then I took a look at the Imperial Hand and noticed that their threat was seemingly low. And I did some, some numbers in my head, and it seems like the app didn't really account for the special setup where they're meant to get twice the threat level worth of threat at the beginning of the the game. So this prompted me to go, okay, well, the only thing that's going to change if I go out and manually make this change uh, is it's going to change the two groups that they decided to open spawn at the beginning. So I reload the mission in the app. I give it six extra threats, since that's the amount the mission would deem it for threat level three, where I'm at. Um... And then it, you know, deploys about 12 threat worth of things, and it says it has about four or five threat left, which made sense. But this time I had toggled the adaptive difficulty setting. Uh, and looking through their wiki, it looks like that's something that's a little more interesting. And I was tearing through the mission pretty easily. I think the, the, the way that that campaign is set up, you get a lot of stuff to deal with the side missions in there. Um, but... Because of adaptive difficulty, the way that that seems to work in the app is that every time you defeat a group of enemies, the AI gets extra threat equal to half of their cost. So I tore through everything, and there was nothing on the map until the end of round three, when I furthered the objective and it spawned a few big enemies. And I was like, okay, I can deal with this, taking a little damage, but, you know, everything's fine. And then at the end of the round, it goes... Here's 25 threat worth of enemies at once. <laughs> uh, so suddenly, what's that? Oh, tw- I'm just saying 25, that's more than you can deploy in a regular campaign. Right, and I think that the app, because of the, the fame rules it uses and the adaptive difficulty, it will let you put threat over 20. Um, so it had decided to spawn like an elite Tuscan Raider group, a regular Tuscan Raider group, a, there was a Bantha 
already on the field. Uh, then it summoned a stormtrooper group. It summoned a couple other things. But it was like, oh, now they're. I just went from one enemy to ten. This is insane. Um, and I went through another round, and it was pretty grueling. And I was like, you know what? At least if this is the one big swarm, I can kind of maybe make my way through this. I get to the end of the, the fourth round, I think. And I've taken out the Bantha Rider. I've taken out the Probe Droid. There's still, a, you know, six, seven enemies left. And because you get threat per round, and it had given them half the threat cost of the things I killed, it was like, okay, end of round. It summons a Bantha Rider and a Probe Droid. <laughs> I was like, okay, I don't really know how I'm going to keep up with this if you're going to keep throwing this much threat at me. So did you win? Uh, well, like I said, I'm actually still going through it. I'm going to have mm. to finish up right after, right after this, uh, you know, this podcast. Uh, but the one interesting thing I noted on the Bantha Riders activation, um, so it has the, it has a bonus ability where it tries to land on as many rebels as it can, and then it'll do damage to them. I think that's one of its own abilities. Uh, then it has Trample, which is everything next to it takes damage. So its AI told it to move to trample and try to land on as many enemies as possible. I think its bonus was everything that takes damage and its activation gets weakened. So it took like three, two or three damage to like three rebels. They all got weakened. But the interesting part was its second action that it needed to perform said if it did not use trample, make an attack. Um... And the, the AI instructions usually give it kind of two moves in an attack, but Trample doesn't count as an attack. The interesting thing, though, is because it's a massive figure and its job was to land on rebel figures to do damage, um, and it said don't attack if you used Trample, the other AI steps it could use were move 5 or move 10 to reposition. And uh, technically, you're not supposed to be able to move a massive figure if it lands on other figures during its turn and ends its movement there, because that causes a whole bunch of pushes, and one of the rules is you can't move again. I think that was kind of overlooked in the case of this Bantha, as it seemed like the intent here was move to trample and then move to reposition. Uh, so I kind of had to subvert the regular rules of Imperial Assault to go with, you know, technically it would do nothing here, but I think it's meant to still do something. Yeah, that's uh, that wouldn't be surprising because they're dealing with so much when they're making that app. So I'm sure that would be good to comment on their like their uh, BGG thread. I saw lots of comments on their BGG thread, that, and they seem to be um, implementing updates regularly. I will have to find that. I actually didn't know where to uh, look when I was trying to figure out that threat thing. Look for the BGG thread. Yeah, I think it's open source too, so I think they have a GitHub page as well. But I think most people um, go to that B that Board Game Geek thread to uh, comment on stuff like that. Yeah, nice. What about you, Noah? Have you uh, played any games? Yeah, I did. I played my Week 4 League game against Derek um, two nights ago. And I actually have... It's, there's going to be a video going up next week of that game. Um, and that was pretty crazy. I guess I shouldn't spoil it too much, but, um, I played Kyle's Double Saboteurs and Kotun list with, uh, Saw Gerrera and Mern, and I played against Derek, who was playing IG-11 and Mando and Onar. 
um, and, and I guess Java and Bib as well, uh, on Devron Garrison. And, um, oh, you know, I forgot to introduce our main topic here, which is going to be talking about initiative and skirmish. And that was like a big part of that game was, uh, cause he had a devious scheme, mm. which forces the opponent to take, uh, initiative round one, but allows the devious player to pick their deployment zone. So I had to play around the fact that, um, he was going to have initiative round two and trying to play like defensively on Devron Garrison is kind of a weird thing because <laughs> it's so <laughs> tiny, but then Derek was doing the same thing. So we were both playing super cagey and it came down to like just some wacky stuff. We were playing on the, the map where you can destroy the crates. Um, and yeah, it was, it's a crazy game and I, I think I'll just let it go up on YouTube for people to watch. Um, uh, people should definitely check that out, but, uh, trying to think if there's anything i didn't talk about oh i do go over um there's a, a line of sight trick uh an imperial assault for like eyeballing line of sight without using like a laser or a string or a card or something which uh, can give you a big advantage over your opponent by not tipping them off to like what you're thinking about doing um, and i go over that trick in the video so if you've ever wanted to learn how to eyeball line of sight um, like through tricky, um, blocking, like, like through really tight spaces or, or past like a blocking terrain or something. Um, check out that video when it goes up next week. Wow. This sounds like a great ad for the rest of the channel. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it's for, right? Yeah. I'll um, definitely be checking that out at some point. Yeah, that, that was the main game I played against Derek, um, and I'm now 3-1 and one in the league, so I'm pretty happy about that, too. Like, I feel like I am Congratulations. getting better. Like, I'm, I'm starting to get better at the skirmish again, um, and I don't have to fall back on, uh, on Mando anymore <laughs> <laughs> to carry me. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, let's move on to our rules questions of the week. And we actually had a lot of good ones this week, so we had to kind of narrow it down. Um, but I think we had two that you had wanted to talk about, Wesley. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the, the first one was the Kotun uh, re-roll question. So we had someone in the Slack ask if Kotun uh, can give herself two different re-rolls by using both the professional and dead precise ability? Um, the simple answer is yes. There are two different abilities that both offer rerolls. And for those who don't know, Kochun just has the keyword professional, which lets you reroll a die while she attacks. She also has the ability dead precise, which is if you use a power token while attacking on any of your allied figures within three spaces, they can apply minus one dodge to the results, and they also can do a reroll. Kotun uh, is an allied figure to herself, so yes, she can use the ability on herself, but the question was, can I reroll two different times? Uh, the answer is yes, because if you have two abilities that let you reroll, yeah, there are different sources that let you do the same thing. The, the good caveat here to remember is that you can't reroll the same die twice. Imperial Assault, once a die is rerolled, it cannot be rerolled again. 
you can change the die face with certain abilities, like uh, I think uh, Zeb, that, that his new ability activates after rerolls, I believe, or um, rapid recalibration for droids. But a single die can't be rerolled twice, but you can get multiple sources to reroll multiple dice. So this could also happen in a situation where you have Kotun and, let's say, farm boy Luke Skywalker, who gives rerolls to all of his friends. Uh, Kotun could potentially re-roll all three of her dice if she had Professional, Dead Precise, and Farm Boy Luke's uh, Helping Hand ability. Uh, yeah, also her um, command card can allow that to happen. This actually came up in my game against Derek, interestingly. Um, and before it got asked on the Slack yesterday, um, but her command card also lets her or any figure friendly figure re-roll if they spend a power token so if you play field supply and then have her spend a power token when she attacks she's getting the re-roll from field supply um re-roll from professional and the re-roll from dead precise but like you said you can only use each re-roll on one die each so it's not going to mm-hmm. be very common that you would actually want to re-roll three out of your three or four attack dice if you're focused but it's it's possible yep um and i guess with luke you could do all four and uh get focused or if you're not focused you have more re-rolls than you can technically use yep which is kind of funny but yes there is a diminishing returns uh per re-roll because it's not too often you're going to roll bad on each and every single one of your dice that you roll usually it's one maybe two dice that you would like to re-roll so typically, I think a lot of people try to set up to have at least one if they're going to go for rerolls. Yep. And then what was the other one uh, that came up? Yeah, so we had a question about Obi-Wan Kenobi and Dying Lunge. So for those who don't know, Dying Lunge is a command card, two points. Uh, any figure that has the melee attack type can use it when they would be defeated. Or I think the, the ruling is actually important here. Oh, I think but, I should mention these are ICP versions of the deployment cards because I, I mm-hmm. don't think original Kotun had a reroll on Dead Precise. I think it was just minus one dodge. So, Right, right. So when we talk about Kotun and Obi-Wan in these uh, roll sections here, we're talking about the ICP versions. Yeah. Uh, so for Dying Lunge, it is a normal FFG card. Use when you've suffered damage equal to your health before def- being defeated. You move up to two spaces, then perform a melee attack, then you are defeated. So, the, the thing here was the question of, can Obi-Wan Kenobi, the ICP version, use his ability Strike Me Down, uh, which allows him to be defeated when he is attacked to reduce the amount of victory points he hands out to the opponent, can he use Dying Lunge during that? Uh, The answer to that is no, because Dying Lunge specifies that you can only use it if you suffer damage equal to your health, while the Strike Me Down ability specifically just kills off Obi-Wan Kenobi before any dice are rolled. It's to circumvent the attack and lower the amount of uh, points your opponent gets. And no, I think you chimed in about the the flavor for this one as well. Why Obi Wan was designed this way? Yeah, I mean it's told it was totally designed to capture the the moment in A New Hope where he just stops fighting 
and becomes one with the force when he's being attacked by vader um it fell off to and it does combo into into the force you know it says um so when he does this when he reduces figure cost not only are you giving up less vps but you're also focusing one of your other figures um but we thought it would feel weird if he were to be able to to do that and then all of a sudden attack <laughs> well in the middle of that it felt anti-thematic to what it was supposed to be representing it also felt a little imbalanced as well just being able to trigger dying lunge on demand like that um which i think nowadays would not be that much of an issue in terms of balance like we're trying to we're trying to in the past we've, we're trying to prevent kind of broken interactions you know we're trying to get ahead of all these different interactions that could come up um i think obi-wan could probably wouldn't mind the the little bo uh, boost in efficiency there but um it was mostly for theme and i th think it's still appropriate that he should not be able to do a dying lunge while he's doing his like lift up his lightsaber put away his lightsaber and and allow himself to be defeated type thing i 100 percent agree even if this would be good for him um i think even if that's good for his efficiency maybe something obi-wan's just waiting for in a competitive sense is maybe a different map rotation that would favor his alternate mind alter mind ability a little more i think he's good i think he's just i think he's just hard to use um Ultra mm -hmm. mind is hard to use. Uh, he needs extra armor tokens, and he probably needs Kanan um, mm. to really be good because he is a tank. Like he is very hard to kill if he has block tokens and defensive rerolls. Um, he's just so slow. This is his main problem, and he doesn't have like he's not a brawler, so he can't use parting blow. He He's, but he's guardian, so he's defensive. Um, he, yeah, he's just hard to use. Like, I think Alter Mind is a strong ability, but it's difficult to capitalize on. He doesn't really fit. He's kind of a square peg in a round meta in terms of like <laughs> we have a very offensive based, damage based meta, and he is more of a mm -hmm. map control figure, um, defensive figure. His job is to tank damage from the opponent while your other figures get stuff done and get and kill stuff. Um, so he's kind of a, not an exciting figure in that way either. Um, but you know, Kyle, like Kyle, Kyle has used him a lot in tournament lists in the past. Um, we've seen him be successful in more defensive force user lists. So he he's not he is not unplayable. He might actually be good with uh, maybe Luke and Leia at this point. Maybe Kanan as a defensive kind of force user core. Yeah, I mean, he plays get behind me just as good as anybody, and he also can play bodyguard. So he he's a really good figure to play those cards. Um, and I didn't, I didn't think we were going to get into a, a strategy tech on Obi-Wan, but I always feel the need to defend these underplayed figures. Um He's a guardian, so he can play bodyguard, and he can play get behind me, and he's really good at doing that because he can uh, use uh, strike me down when you when you pull the attack off of him as well, and like focus whoever was going to get attacked, and uh, that works really well. Yeah, that's definitely cool. 
Uh, it is interesting to, for you to say how it seems like he doesn't do much damage because, uh, you know, I mentioned bringing him in that that campaign I played last night, and he was consistently getting off six or seven damage attacks with Pierce three throughout the uh, the mission so far. Yeah, he can hit hard, but sometimes he whiffs hard too. He's he has a very swingy attack, so to speak. Yeah, I think uh, Farm Boy Luke also helps in that department, just giving him a reroll. Yeah, but I think uh, that's that's enough tech on uh, defending Obi Wan here. We could probably move on over to the main topic. Uh, so, as you mentioned briefly earlier today, we're going to be talking about playing around the initiative swing in skirmish. So when you uh, play a skirmish game, the general rule is one player will start with initiative. There are some rules for determining that. Uh, but it usually comes down to a random choice at the beginning of the game, whoever gets the first initiative. Uh, most people... The way that you could guarantee, I think, to get initiative is to uh, play less than 40 points. You play 39, maybe, and you get initiative. Uh, I don't see anyone running just 39-point lists to get the initiative swing, although that would be very cool to see one day. I did that at Worlds. Um, oh, wow. Uh, what was the faction? Spectre Cell. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, was this, a, was this an ICP Worlds or a FFG? No, like actual Worlds, like Worlds 2019. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Didn't work out that great FFG. for me. I went three and three, but <laughs> just I just wanted to bring world. it up. You win some, you lose some, right? That's good. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that is interesting. Um, but then at the end of each round, initiative will typically switch to well, does switch to the other person when the new round starts. Uh, but there are ways to manipulate initiative, especially with the game's most notorious command card, Take Initiative. But the idea here is that controlling the initiative throughout your game can massively improve your game if you're not already thinking about it in future rounds when you play. Uh, because whoever has initiative does get to go first, and there are certain rounds in your game that as the game develops where you're going to find that you want to be the one to go first or you want to give that to your opponent for a round. Yeah, so talking about initiative, I mean, it's such a big part of skirmish and it's a big difference from if you're only used to campaign where one side always gets to go first, having an alternate alternating system where each player gets to go first in different rounds um, is going to be different, but it makes for a very dynamic play experience. And something I wanted to mention, um, you mentioned if you take uh, up one point, we ca usually call it a bid in other games. If you if you play a 39-point list, um, you get to can have initiative first. Um, you actually get to choose which player wants it or which player gets initiative if you take a bid. And um, usually you want to give your opponent initiative first. Um, it's generally considered to be a disadvantage to have initiative um, in round one because that means your opponent's going to have it in round two when the fighting has started at the end of round one. Um, and it also, should also be noted that um, initiative is actually random uh, to start. I think a lot of players get this wrong where they roll off and then whoever wins the roll like chooses 
and that's not the case. It's really just whoever gets the highest roll on the blue die um, is stuck with initiative round one. So I think a lot of players actually do that wrong. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, I that's a good point there, uh, that you don't really get to pick go first, go second. Like in a lot of other games, you just hope that you don't roll high this one time. I think when I was looking up maybe six, eight months ago and playing a few skirmish games in person with a friend more casually, but I think we looked up the initiative rules and it said that technically, I think the person that has initiative is also the one that has to set up the game technically and is responsible for like using their map tiles, uh, their you know terminals and everything. And that's not really competitive in a sense, but... Uh, <laughs> from just a game standpoint, kind of a funny standpoint. It's like, oh man, yeah. You get the bad position when you get initiative first in the game and you're the one that has to do all the work. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Yeah, we are talking about the mechanics of who gets it. So yeah, while we uh, paused right there, I looked up uh, rules reference, uh, the thing I just mentioned about getting initiative and Know, being the one to have to set everything up. I actually can't find that verbatim, but I do see that it is the player with initiative that typically, or that is meant to shuffle their own deck of skirmish mission cards and draw one card to determine what mission everyone is going to play. So that is an interesting bit. I think we normally don't deal with that because we play you know, mostly competitive, and I think if people really just want to play skirmish, they're going to do it randomly and kind of ignore that specific rule, but it is there. <laughs> it's just an interesting tidbit. Yeah, it's kind of a weird rule. I don't think anybody actually plays that way. Usually you would have a map set up and then you'll roll off for initiative. Mm-hmm. Um, what we're talking about? I think and that's prob- the rule you're probably referencing is probably in the skirmish guide, but um, moving into more of the strategic aspect of initiative. So initiative is super important for planning out your future turns and really like who you're predicting to have initiative in the next round should be having a major impact on the strategy that you are adopting in the current round um and i think a lot of especially new players but even like longtime players don't maybe don't do that or they they don't um like they're they're not looking at the cards in hand and like what's actually going to happen they're just thinking well it's 50 50 whether who has initiative next round because i might get take initiative or they might draw take initiative etc um but it is much more probabilistic than that that base you should just be going based unless you have unless you have take initiative in your hand and calm disruption (laughs) that can stop their negation like um, what am I trying to say? I guess I'm there's saying, always a chance that you're not gonna get what you plan. Well, all that, but like that, that it's still more likely than not that if you have initiative in the current round, your opponent's probably gonna have initiative in the next round. Right. Um, right. And and vice versa. If your opponent has initiative, um, you will probably get initiative in the next round again unless they you know they could draw take initiative but you could also draw negation um 
I think it really does come to, in that case, it comes more to a probability of how many cards has your opponent drawn through their deck, and are they a maniac who isn't playing take initiative? Right, which you should always assume take initiative is being played. I think at this point we yeah. have established that take initiative is a staple. It's 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 the first card sure. you should put in every deck, and the last card you should put it in every deck. Um because it's so powerful to be able to activate first, which is why it's important to like plan your game around who's going to activate first each round. Um, so what does that mean? Like, what does that look like? Well, you're looking at who's going to have initiative next round. It's going to change how offensively or aggressively or defensively you're playing. Right. So, if you are going to have initiative next round, then you are looking to set up a good end of round position in the current round where you will then be able to capitalize on going first in the next round. Um, versus if your opponent is going to have initiative in the next round, you want to probably play a little more conservatively um, you want to kind of just ride it out is what I like to do is like don't make any big moves control as many object objectives as you can without putting important figures in danger and set it up so that uh, when the opponent gets initiative in the next round they don't have any good targets to gain a lot of tempo on you by activating first um, and then then, then you get into the position of, okay, now they have an issue of this round. Now I'm going to have an issue of next round. So now you're going to start setting up so that you're having good end-of-round positioning to go into the next round with a, a good play. Um, so do you think about this when you're playing your skirmish games, Wesley? All, all the time, yeah. How does that, yeah, what does that look like? Well, um, let's say it's... Uh... You know, you get close to the end of the round and you're you're setting up, especially the first round is the most critical because that's when you're setting up your positioning for the next round. So if I am starting the game with initiative and I don't have take in my hand, then what it looks like for me is trying to put all my figures just out of reach of my opponent being able to see them while having them close enough to pop into line of sight and do things starting next round. Um, I want to try and force my opponent to make that first move into whatever center area we're going to fight in. Uh, and so if I'm pretty sure they're going to get initiative next round, I play that way. Where I think it gets, you know, I play more conservative and want to hold all my figures back, or I want to throw out a less important piece to kind of get up and get a close to end of round shot that will hopefully survive till the end of the round, but kind of act like a bait for my opponent to make that first move next round, jump out, and take one of my weaker guys so that I can go in with the rest and try and take out, you know, whatever his strongest units are that just expose themselves. Now, if I do have take initiative, uh, then it comes to whether I think my opponent has drawn negation or comms disruption. And, you know, I will... Basically, either try to go for the assumption that I'm going to get initiative next round by taking it back, 
and set up a more offensive play, or go for a half measure and try and expose myself a little bit, but not to such a devastating degree, which is a lot harder to do. Um, knowing that there's more of that 50-50 that my opponent can, you know, negate or comms disrupt. And less, uh, less, less lists are going to run comm disruption than they are negation. But, you know, you say it's, it's more probabilistic than 50-50. It depends. There are some lists that draw seven or eight cards in the first round, and that's a 50-50 on getting negation. Uh, or a 50-50 of getting take initiative. I think what... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, yeah, and I usually like to plan around negation, like having negation more than I like to plan around having take initiative. Um, Just because negation is kind of the sure thing, unless they're playing spies and they have calm disruption. Um, Like, they can't negate your negation. Mm -hmm. So i much rather be in the position where I know that I have initiative coming to me in the next round and I have negation in my hand than be the one where I have take initiative in my hand. Um, for me, take initiative is always kind of like a, if it works, if it goes through, great, but I didn't, I, I didn't set up my turn so that I was relying on it going through, you know what I mean? Whereas if I have negation, I'm going to be like, okay, I'm going to plan around having an issue next round because there's nothing my opponent can do to take it from me because I have negation and I'm going to hold it until that take initiative comes out. Um, yeah. So you make a good point. I, I do. If I have negation in hand, I am playing that way uh, where I am, you know, more sure that I'm going to get initiative. That's the most sure you can be. Besides having comms disruption, if you're a comms disruption player, you're feeling really good if you have that. Um. Yeah, and if I know that my opponent is going to have initiative next round, um, especially in round one, I am playing super conservative. I'm playing very, and also keeping my figures together, um, because if you split up, like that is an easy way for your opponent to like end of round, double move, um, play a free attack end of round card like Ferocity or Ponsel or whatever start of round, attack again and then move away from the rest of your forces where they cannot come up and shore up the figure you just lost um, so I'm always keeping my figures really tightly compacted um, when, I mean, and not necessarily like all adjacent to each other, but in the same room, basically mm-hmm. like same area, so that if my opponent does try something like that they try to like bum rush me at the end of round one and use their start of round two initiative to like do a lot of tempo damage Mm -hmm. i have the rest of my army there and they're gonna hunt that figure down and kill them for for trying to do that um Mm. and it's not like in my experience it's not quite enough to just stay out of just out of reach or out of sight because opponents are always setting up like movement cards and um, deep strike abilities, stuff like that, um, double moving, and then using the initiative to get that first strike off on you. Um, I mean, it's just, it is generally good practice, like, to move up and, but stay out of sight, but, uh, like, depending on what I'm playing, too, like, if I'm playing against a queen piece that I know is going to be generating lots of extra attacks, or if it's, like, Luke or IG that's going to get extra activations, 
um, through Blaze or Son of Skywalker, like, I'm always, I'm always shoring up and getting ready for the worst when that, that end of round, sw- start around mm-hmm. swing happens for my opponent. And then the next round, or when I, th- when it's going to go my favor, my way, you know, I'm trying to be the one thinking, how can I do maximum damage to my opponent's army while taking minimal losses and use the initiative swing to facilitate that? Right, definitely. And I think that's where it comes into when I mentioned the bait is more of like the sacrificial pawn. Someone's got to go out there and someone's got to take those first hits. So if you're going to lose something, it's better to be a purge trooper than it is your Grand Inquisitor. Yeah. Yeah, and that's true. Like, uh, you can use cheap figures like that. Um, I did this in my game against Derek where I was like, I'm going to send out this cheap figure. It's going to do something I want to accomplish. And if my opponent, like, I'm going to put it somewhere so my opponent can kill it if they want, but they'll have to move out of safety to do so and then i'll be able to to trade uh up on figures if they do that uh or if you're only losing a cheap figure it's not a big deal as long as you're getting as long as you're doing it for a reason you're getting something done um it's it's valuable so let's see what 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 do we need to talk about that we haven't talked about with initiative there's a few like kind of smaller issues we talked about taking initiative and negation um, let's talk about end of round effects and how that factors into that. So, um, a lot of maps have what we like to call screw doors, but these are basically just doors that open at the end of the round automatically. Um, so that includes Uskru Entertainment District, uh, Moss Eisley, uh, what is it? Moss Eisley Back Alleys. Uh, actually, I think all the maps right now in, in ICP competitive because Devron Garrison has them as well. Yeah. So you have to be thinking about not only where you're putting your figure, but also like the map is about to change in the mi- between rounds where there was a a blocking terrain effectively that is no longer going to be there when initiative changes, and how does that affect? How does that affect your end of round? How does affect how does that affect how things are gonna go start of round? So like, especially like your opponent might have been totally safe, um, and you might have been safe from them, but then at the start of the next round, all of a sudden that thing that was protecting you from them is gone, and now you're gonna take a bunch of damage at the start of round two because you didn't account for the fact that this door is gonna open. Right, I actually made that mistake in my last skirmish game, the one where I was playing Royal Guard Champion, uh, end of round one. Han did come up to a corner, and uh, I had not realized that the end of round effects take place after the ear screw doors. So, mm-hmm. you know, door opened, and he got a shot and one shot my officer, and I think I missed out on the terminal draw for that round because of that. Um... So you actually would have drawn for a terminal. So the the order of operations is you draw command cards. So this is status phase. You draw command cards for terminals. You mm-hmm. resolve mission effects um, in the order they're listed on the mission card. And then you resolve end of round uh, player effects. Maybe I did draw them. It was a week or two ago, but I definitely remember going, oh, I don't have that guy on the terminal anymore. This is either going to suck now or later. 
Yeah, so the way it plays out is Usru doors will open first, but you'll also mm-hmm. score objectives first. And then mm-hmm. you do end of round attacks. So end of right. round attack will generally not be able to interrupt like an objective score, but it works out so that the end of round attack will get to go through the door that just opened. Which um, is very powerful. Yeah, and that's another important thing to talk about is end of round attacks. So we have figures like um, Han Solo and um, who else? Vader uh, is a good one. These figures are able to get uh, end of round attacks. Um, I also you can also count like Luke and IG because of Son of Skywalker and Blaze of Glory. Like these are effectively end of round attacks. Actually, usually double attacks. Because they have both Assault and Luke has Heroic. Um, Ferocity is another one for creatures. Um, Call the Vanguard is another one for troopers. That's technically start of round. Some of these these take place at different timings. So before or after doors or objectives. So I think that's an important note. Yeah, some of them do. So like... Son of Skywalker and Blaze of Glory would be before doors and objectives, but um, all the end of round attacks and start of round attacks would be after doors open. And after Let's not forget Jutland Terror. Uh, yeah, well, oh yeah, that's a good one. Jutland Terror. That one's end of round, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, that one's end of round. So, um, so there's quite a few of these, and you have to consider. And some of them are not on the cards. You have to know about the command cards that provide them. Um, but they can really, really exacerbate the initiative swing, or they can blunt it, depending on which side you're on. Um, and it's something you need to consider, especially with how much risk you want to take if your opponent's going to get initiative next round. And um, you're like, well, I have take. It'll be fine. And they haven't played negation yet. And then... You get your take negated, and they hit you with an end-of-round Han attack, and then Kotun hits you with a call the Vanguard attack, and then they activate, and they attack you again. <laughs> and you're like, oh, maybe that wasn't such a good idea. Uh, so it's, yeah. it's, that's why yeah, it's important to kind of factor that in. Um, I mean, I think negation is such a, a critical card, mostly because you need it for take initiative. Uh, Earlier when I would get into skirmish, uh, we used to say, oh, my opponent would play planning round one, and then we'd go, okay, I feel like I can really stop their tempo gain here by stopping two cards, and maybe I'm also stopping them from drawing take initiative. So I would negate that. And then quite often, you know, even without those two cards, they'd still be drawing five, six throughout the round uh, by the end of round one, and they would still be able to take pretty often, and then I did not have my get-out-of-jail option. Yep, I used to do that too. When I first started playing Skirmish, I thought negating planning was a great value move, and I've now learned that the tempo from taking initiative is just way more valuable and more important to negate. I think, in my general experience, the two cards that I am always going to negate are either take initiative or urgency uh, or any other like game two movement card. Because, mm-hmm. and I think I talk about this in the game with Derek, but cards like Urgency are cards that are your opponent is only ever going to play when um, it's going to give them an extra attack that they would not have gotten without playing Urgency. So 
you know, when you negate an urgency, you're usually negating an attack, uh, which is very strong. Right. And then that's the same case with when you negate take initiative, you're negating, you're stopping an, an extra attack, especially if you can kill that attacker before they get to attack by virtue of having initiative. I'd still say that maybe take initiative is, is, is still even more valuable because if your opponent is using something like urgency to get an attack off, it means that they're committing that figure to getting to that space because they need those extra points. Uh, take initiative is stopping someone from being able to move and possibly position afterwards or activate several other abilities. So I think they're could be a little more value in stopping a take versus an urgency. Although, yes, there there's definitely times for stopping urgency is a high priority. Or uh, any other movement card. Yeah, I think there's I think it's defensible to say you should save your negation if they haven't played take initiative, even if they do play urgency. But um there is something there's a there's a concept of time time value money where stopping doing something or stopping something that's a problem now is worth more than stopping something that's a problem later um mm -hmm. because the thing that comes later is not a guarantee and the problem that's happening in front of you now is happening so mm -hmm. there's a there's argument in that case of like urgency is going to generate an attack here that i can stop a negation now and they might not have taken initiative i mean usually they do draw it you know, don't get me wrong, but they might not draw it, and they do have urgency now. So if I hold, if I'm holding this negation, um, I might not get to use it on anything else that would have been as valuable as this urgency. But uh, mm. you know, it, it's case by case basis. Like like you're saying, right. like a take initiative could be so powerful for them that it's worth it to save it, even if you there's a chance that they don't draw it. Um, so let's talk about, um, two cards I listed here that are important to consider. Uh, one of them is Devious Scheme. We kind of talked about this in my game recap, but, uh, this is a powerful card in Scum that allows the controller to force the initiative onto the opponent while still getting to pick the best deployment zone. Mm -hmm. Um... So this is a really valuable card if your list is um, really wants to have that initiative swing round one. And this is generally for like lists that have queen pieces that can get a lot done in a single activation. So things like, again, like IG-88 um, or IG-11 in the case of like Derek's list, uh, where he's getting two attacks, two three dice attacks out of IG-11 uh and he's speed five so that makes a lot of sense right see to, to and i think scum has quite a few so like if you're playing boba for example uh, mm -hmm. or again ig88 any of these figures they really like to take advantage of that going last and going first in succession because you're getting like usually like two activations worth each time they activate so um probably rancor too oh yeah rancor is a good one um because you're trying to double activate there as well. Um, but you really want to have eight activations if you're going to do this. Um, mm -hmm. Otherwise, a lot of times, a lot of lists are able to get to eight. And so if even if you 
We didn't really talk about that. Um, figuring out who has lacked at last activation where having more activations is advantageous because it makes it easier for you to have the last activation on round one. Um, and the way it works is if two players have the same number of activations, then the player that does not have initiative is going to have the last activation, right? Right. But if one player has even one more activation than the opponent, it doesn't matter who is going first on round one. The player with more activations will get to activate last. Right. And, you know, I think that was when the Han Solo in my game, uh, the Erskri door opened and he one-shot the officer. I think that was a double concern for me because I lost an activation in my eight-point Royal Guard Champion activation list. Mm. So that was a consideration going into round two, that we were now tied for activations again. Yeah, and generally it matters more in round one when you're setting up for that end-of-round start-around swing. Um, but it can matter sometimes in round two as well, who gets the last activation um, to set up for another end of round start around swing and going into round three. But um, so, yeah, that's why you often hear eight activations is like the gold standard for if you want to activate last on round one um, to get that advantage of perfect positioning and um, end of round start around swing or to prevent it, right? If you're opponents trying to do that like if you have initiative but you get to activate last that round you are going to be able to kind of stop the opponent from getting that chain of going last in round one going first in round two because you get to interrupt it with having last activation mm-hmm. yeah yeah a lot of lists in imperial assault tend to be six to seven activations and if you hit eight most of the time it's because that's your strategy to counter 90% of the lists you're going to see. Yeah. Yeah, and it's true. If you are... I don't think you should, like, compromise your list to get to 8. Like, I think some people go a little smuggler crazy sometimes with, like, Alliance Smugglers or um, Jawas. uh, Just shoving them in their list without having really a reason to need to get up to eight activations. Um, You really want to have that eight activations when you have like a big, expensive, powerful figure that can do a lot with an end of round activation. Or if like, like in the case of another list I was playing, um, I had HK 47 at Headhunter. So with that list, I really wanted to get last activation each round because I wanted to have perfect information um, on the table when I activated HK-47 last and could get line of sight with Headhunter so that my opponent like couldn't just move any of their figures out thinking without uh, having to deal with that. So that's another reason mm-hmm. you might want eight activations. Um, yeah. But it's not something you should just shoot for for the sake of getting eight activations. You know what I mean? Right, so, right. But so, if you do have that, that big, strong guy, mm-hmm. um, like I think you just said, your opponent can't really get to them until you activate them and at least move them halfway up the map or, you know, at least up to where they're getting ready to attack. And if you get that last activation, you know, no one is going to deep strike into your deployment zone 
uh, and get to your Han Solo before he gets to go, unless you're playing on Dever and Harrison in the first round. Yeah, and that's why we are always very careful in design when we're designing like cards for Empire that we're trying not to make too many cheap um, but powerful and efficient figures in Empire because tech like generally Empire is the, fi the faction you see having a hard time getting to eight because of Vader. Um, you know, we're always worried about Vader, an eight activation Vader list that is like super efficient would be problematic uh, because of the implication of Vader getting to activate last and get an end of round move plus attack and activate first is, is, is scary. Um, I mean, I think we uh, took a step there in season seven with the purges. I mean, that's why they started off a lot pretty undercooked compared based on what people were saying is just, mm -hmm. we didn't want to make them too efficient. And I think they're still kind of not super like, I don't know. I might be wrong about that with vader and that concern we haven't seen an eight activator list really do anything yet so yeah um, fingers crossed that that doesn't come back to bite us um so that's that's whole thing about last activation uh what did i want to say oh and then the last thing to talk about is that will influence how you play around initiative is going to be um doubt so Doubt is a card that at the end of each round will strip a focus token from a figure. And when I'm playing like a scum or a rebel and I'm trying to play around the initiative swing and I'm usually trying to delay, right? Like if I'm like, okay, this round is not going to be good for me to take action because my opponent's going to have initiative next round. So I'm trying to push, push the action off to the, to the following round where I can actually make the swing work in my favor. So in the meantime, I'm trying to do everything I can to get all my figures ready to go with focus or power tokens or what have you. And doubt is really good at punishing this. Um, so doubt is another tool you should think about both when you're list building and you're thinking about, okay, this is a list where like, I don't mind just sitting around near my deployment zone building up resources while I wait for the initiative swing to happen. Um, doubt might be really good for you because it, it will give you even more of an advantage. Um, but it's also like during the gameplay, when you're doing what you're doing, um, you want to be aware of whether doubt is in play or not on your opponent's side of the table. Yeah. And I think uh, the reason, another reason this ties into initiative has to do with uh, if your opponent has any end of round attacks. Whether or not you have initiative will determine whether or not you can doubt to remove that queen piece's focus or power token before they get off that end of round attack. Oh yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, that's very relevant for Han, especially. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, I guess to kind of wrap wrap it up, sum it up... Um, Initiative is. I think, I think oh, before we before we do a full wrap up, uh, one thing I think we kind of skipped over is the player with initiative chooses their deployment zone, right? But then they also need to deploy their figures first. Uh, yeah, that's true. And I think that if you don't have initiative, another advantage here, round one, is that you get to see what your opponent's starting positions are and then take advantage of that. Uh, by, you know, deploying your own units accordingly to theirs. 
I think, again, Devar and Garrison being so small is a great example for a lot of things here. But some lists, you know, if you want to play defensively or offensively, if your opponent has initiative, they deploy all their figures. Uh, you can see whether they're going to go down the middle or they're going to go down the right or they're going to split. And if you've got that melee list and you want to go down the center and chase after them, you can. Or if you, you're scared of their melee list, you see where they deploy it, then you say, okay, I'm going to send my figures down the other lane and kind of run from them as I build up my counterattack. You get a lot more power there. Yeah, that's interesting. I think most deployment zones are small enough that it. I don't think you can put too much stock into their starting deployment really impacting their final positioning except for I guess Moss Isley um, because Moss Isley is uh, it, it is pretty big in terms of like where one side where one exit is compared to where the other exit is um, so I haven't really thought about that but that is a good point I mean, it can be a little hard to think that, you know, that many spaces for that many figures that far ahead of time with that little time to decide. But, you know, cards like Urgency are extremely valuable that give you one or two movement points. So seeing whether your opponent is sending their queen piece left or right might be the difference between whether they get the first attack they want to make or they wind up reacting to you going the other direction and needing to double move at some point versus getting an attack off. So I think that you can at least try to look at it and see if there's some advantage you can take there to kind of force them to either plan optimally or send some of their big guys in a direction that you're not going to send a lot of your stuff so you can one on a different front. Yeah, that's a good point. I think... Being aware of that is certainly good, but it's also important to be aware that your opponent might put one figure on the left and one on the right, but round one figures can usually just double move and, mm-hmm. and pretty much switch up wherever they, they have started. So, But it's something to, good, something to keep in mind. Yeah. Well, like I said, you know, you can definitely switch up, but like if you if you wanted to move eight somewhere and you put your figure two spaces further away from where you wanted to move... You know, I've seen people not really be able to do the the setup thing round one that they want to do, and then they wind up wasting part of their round two activation compensating for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably big, more of a thing on bigger maps. Yeah. Yeah, like you said, Masaisley, I think I've seen that the most. Yeah, the exits are so far away, and there's also, like, one side actually has blocking or impassable terrain where... That can make it pretty hard to to double back and switch where you where you put your figure. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> okay, well, to uh, to sum up, then, like initiative is super important, um, and knowing who's going to have initiative on each of the subsequent rounds should be informing. Like, you should be thinking about next round's initiative at the start of the current round and planning your entire round around that, um, which I think a lot of players maybe don't do or um, don't think about or they don't go to that length. Like, they're only thinking about initiative, like, when there's two or three activations left in the current round, and then they start thinking, oh, where's initiative going to be next round? How should I plan it? But no, start of the current round, first activation of the current round, you should be thinking, 
what's the what's the initiative going to be next round and how should all of my activations um play into that mm -hmm. yeah it does help to have some of those filler i call them filler activations in that way where your r2 is always going to move up to the terminal and draw a card your c3po is always going to move three in the direction he wants in focus and that kind of helps you narrow it down to four or five activations before you really have to commit to those decisions yeah, but in even, some cases. even like C-3PO, I'm thinking about where do I want him so that, because I need to know where am I going to put the rest of my forces this round? Am I going to put them over here in this defensive area? Am I going to spread them out where somebody's going to go and do a end of round thing and it doesn't really matter where I put him or, you know, stuff like that. His his distracting ability is really important. Um, you're right, the, those filler activations are useful, but also... And we didn't mention this, but you can pass in Imperial Assault Skirmish. So um, if the opponent has more ready activations than you, you can just pass. So if your opponent has brought a bunch of filler and they have eight or nine activations and you're playing a six activation Vader list, you can just pass through those Gideon R2 3PO activations and then get to you know where you and your opponent are activating equally important figures. And again, that will still make it so that they get the last activation. That's their bonus for, you know, that's just the way it works out with them having more to begin with. But you can force out those those fillers so that you can react to what they're actually doing versus what their setup mini, mini activations are trying to get done. Yeah, and I mean, wherever where you put your figures round one is going to have consequences in round two, even for the smallest figures like you were talking about. Yeah. Um, and for those figures that aren't like, even if you think a figure is not doing anything round one, like you want to put them somewhere where they're going to be able to do, do something round two. And so you always should be thinking about one round ahead of like, why am I putting this figure here and where do I need to put them so that they're going to be effective in round two and not either too far away or too exposed in too much danger uh, in round two, which is, you know, it's complex. And it's one of the reasons skirmish is really fun is there's a lot of, uh, strategical complexity to it. Yeah, definitely. All right. I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Um, Wesley, do you have anything you want to plug? Yep. I, uh, I do have a YouTube channel as I mentioned on every uh, episode, but, uh, I do have an idea for a quick star Wars Imperial assault based video that, uh, might get made by the next time we talk. Sweet. Well, I'm always looking for more competition. <laughs> Keeps it yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. Sure. Oh, yeah, Wesley. Um, I heard you got to finally see Andor. Um, and I want to hear your thoughts uh, on the show. And, did, did by the way, did you listen to my take on the show from the last episode? I uh, I actually listened to your podcast while working, but I did not get a chance to get to that part of it last week. So I've not gotten your take yet. Um, was this a spoiler-free take? Uh, yeah, it was. There's no spoilers in that in that review that I did. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll just. Uh... Yeah, I think it's definitely interesting, and it feels like it has a lot of care put into it and a lot of good buildup. Um, I'm getting well, invested in some of even the side characters. Yeah, one thing before you start, since we already did a spoiler free, go ahead and spoil away. Like if you know, if you oh, guys sure. haven't seen, if listeners haven't seen it yet, just pause it, go watch it, and then come back and get Wesley's take. But I think at this point, 
fine to give spoilers, right? Like, go ahead and, and yeah. talk about whatever you want. Sure. So, I mean, a lot of the characters just seem to have a great uh, screen presence. Like, even the the bad guy from the first few episodes with the the blue uniform, you know, I could see his emotions and feel that, and I hope he does more in the season after uh, that, that loss he had. Um, the first two episodes were kind of slow, and then the third one picked up everything. I feel like this could have just been made... Those three episodes could have been just repackaged and released as one big first episode. Not sure why they had to make it three. I guess they wanted to spend more time on building up. Uh, then episode four definitely had some good scenes, but felt like another build-up to, you know, the thing that's going to happen. And this is a change of pace from something like The Mandalorian, where every episode is where they build up and then go do the thing. But you get a lot more depth of each character, and I'm liking that. Um, definitely a lot more... Keeping my my uh, my good graces a lot more than the Boba Fett show did, for the most part. Uh, I like the... The rebel guy that shows up and recruits Cassian, I I mean, he just looks like someone and feels like someone that I that's so important that I should know who it is, but I don't think he's been in other stuff. I did love when he dressed up as this gaudy uh, purple suit with the big fashionable wig guy, and his front is, you know, working in a historical artifact museum, and he's using that to kind of do some of his... Rebel espionage. I think one of the best parts of the show that's really Star Wars-y is how it goes into the way that the people feel about the Empire and the way they're being ruled, and kind of the secretive way and the tactics that the non-magic wizard uh, rebels have to actually use and use. Like, when Luke joined the Rebellion, what was the Rebellion like? I feel like uh, Andor is giving a good impression of that. Nice. All right. Anything else you wanted to say about the show? I mean, I'm just excited for the uh, the next episode. We could sit here and talk about you know individual details or scenes for a while. Um, they also introduced in the most recent episode the the blonde woman who is one of the Imperial generals, and she also seems to have a very powerful screen presence in my point of view. So I'm looking forward to what the the original bad guy and the current woman who seems to be the next bad guy are going to get up to. Um, and I definitely like uh, the little rebel team that Cassian has joined and the way that they all exude these different personalities. And I'm looking forward to seeing that giant explosion of bright colors in the sky that they talked about as their cover for the big heist they're going to pull off. Yeah, I was I was a little disappointed that we're, now that we're in the Empire proper, we're back to the like Imperial squabbling over who gets to who gets attention from daddy but um i do like <laughs> yeah I, I do like that the at least the isb leader guy is um kind of above that he he's like he recognizes that they're doing it and they're like he's like stop this is not productive get back to your jobs <laughs> so but that, yeah, yeah but i wasn't the reason that he wanted that that she wanted that was to get her special imperial ship box back yeah, that's true, but they still kind of end up fighting each other, right, over who gets attention from, from their babysitter, but... <laughs> yeah, that's and, true. And he also kind of is is like, you know, you have a promising career, don't squ- squander it on this 
type of thing, which is again, more of that ladder climbing, but I guess that's, um, par for the course for the empire. So they're just kind of staying on brand, but mm-hmm. we'll see how it plays out. I, it will be interesting. Yeah. Like I said, uh, that first bad guy though, he went back home to mommy and got slapped, but I hope that's not the end of his story either. All right. Thanks everybody for watching. We will catch you next time. All right. Stay frosty, everyone.